This morning we'll be considering together the Word of God in Second Timothy, chapter Second Timothy chapter one, verses eight through twelve, which is on page nine hundred ninety-five in your bulletins. I'm sorry, in the Bibles that are in your pews. Second Timothy chapter one, verses eight through twelve, page nine hundred ninety-five. Let's draw near to God and pray. Our God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in these last days by your Son, the heir of all all worlds, whom you have appointed to be so, the one who deserves all the the praise and the glory and the honor for all creation, for by him you have made all things. We praise you that he, having made purification for sins, has sat down, finished his work, and is at the right hand of the Father Almighty, that he reigns, that he even now deserves all the praise of all men and angels. We would come with hearts to receive again his word. We would ask, O Lord, that you would give to us by your spirit that spiritual sight that is so necessary that we would glorify the Lord Jesus and delight in him and not be ashamed of him. O God, speak to us, we pray. Because your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is God's holy and precious word. One of our older theologians One of the old Princeton theologians, B.B. Warfield, says about this passage that surely there is gathered together in this great exhortation everything that could be needed to fill with deathless courage in the behalf of the gospel even the most timid hearts. I'd like you to look with me at the text under three headings. First, our sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, our salvation through the gospel, by the power of God and our security in the gospel by the power of God. This 
of course, is the primary exhortation, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed, Paul says, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Why would he so urge Timothy? Don't be ashamed. Why would he so urge the church? It's helpful to consider that Paul is writing this from prison, and we'll consider some of the the challenges he faces in addition to that, but suffering is a shameful thing. People who suffer and who struggle, people who are difficult, don't usually find themselves surrounded with lots of other people who love and embrace them. Suffering is hard. Suffering is often shameful for us. We suffer in business and maybe ask ourselves, is there something I did? Did I sin against the Lord? We suffer in relationships and there's that shame. Maybe if you were a better parent, maybe if you were a better husband. This is how the disciples spoke to Jesus of the man who was born blind, John chapter 9. Who sinned? And it's as if this hidden and subliminal question is almost always there with suffering. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Somebody had to sin. What did you contribute? It's certainly true that many times we do add to our suffering and to our shame because of things that we do. Poor planning, poor spending, poor eating, lots of poor choices that we can all think about and we feel ashamed If only I had done this or that. It is a shameful thing to suffer. Well, Paul is suffering. He's in prison, and he is wrongfully imprisoned. He has stood for the cause of God and the gospel, but he is in a Roman prison. And he is faced with accusations and trials by the governing authorities, and he's alone. We read further into this epistle, this letter to Timothy, and we find that nearly everybody else has abandoned him. All the Christians who one time supported him have turned away. It's as if he's exhorting Timothy, please don't turn away from me. You ever felt like that? And more than that, it's cold. He doesn't have his cloak. There he is. Surely the great theologian of the church, and he doesn't have his library. I know that sounds maybe small to some of us, but he asks about it. Please bring the parchments when you come. You know, you would expect, here's a lifetime of toiling and suffering for Jesus that you could just have an easy retirement. But no, he still has to suffer for Jesus. And that suffering comes with Shame. Who really wants to associate with Paul? In prison again? How many times has this happened? Does he really have to speak so vehemently against Jewish religion? Does he really have to so publicly point out the sins of Rome and the pagan religion? It's kind of hard to connect yourself to a guy like Paul, the prisoner. Paul constantly in trouble with the government and his own people. Imagine what people are saying about Timothy. Surely he doesn't hang out with Paul anymore, his old mentor and father in the faith. Don't be ashamed. Well, we can feel shame, I would venture to say, for at least two things. One, because we've done wrong. 
Maybe nobody else knows that you took the cookie out of the cookie jar, but you know. And you feel ashamed. And if it gets pulled out into public, into the light of day, it hurts. And it makes you feel very ashamed. You'd like to wither up and crawl into a hole somewhere. If only people didn't know. That's true. And certainly Paul is talking about that kind of shame, which is addressed in the gospel. But it's really, a, I, I think, another sort of shame that he's addressing, a sort of misplaced trust. Isaiah 50, verse 7, has this about shame or disgrace. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. What's the concern? Is God going to come through for me? Paul says in Romans 1, familiar passage and certainly connected here, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do you remember this? It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I don't need to be ashamed because what I have put my trust in is not misplaced. The gospel really has power. It's really true. Now, in my lifetime, I have seen many different conspiracies advanced and many different moments at which the end of the world was prophesied. And I remember one in particular that originated, I think, out of Southern California in which there was supposed to be on a particular day. Now, this dates me. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. This Heaven's Gate cult they were expecting aliens to show up and bring the end of the world. Now, what happens when the end of the world doesn't come? Well, you feel pretty ashamed and pretty foolish, right? Well, that wasn't worth relying on. I guess we were kind of stupid there. This is the kind of shame that Paul is particularly exhorting against. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Because we might feel the same way. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord that is the confirmation of all that we possess in Christ. Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus himself has testified to himself We read this earlier, and Matthew Poole in particular notes that Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession. He testified to who he was. Jesus openly declared himself to the rulers of the empire. And he was not ashamed to do it. And you must not be ashamed of who he really is and who he declares himself to be, his own testimony, or for that matter, the testimony of the apostles that he has sent to proclaim this testimony. Jesus despised the shame, so must you. Think of Noah, a hundred years building the ark. How many assaults, verbal assaults, must he have endured? Yeah, Noah, when's your flood going to show up? Ha, ha, ha. Can you imagine if it didn't? He would have been the guy who just built a big boat with no place to float it. My friends, 
Noah was not ashamed. Paul writes in Philippians 1, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but will with full courage now as always honor Christ in my body, whether by life or by death. And so it is not only for the Lord Jesus, for his messengers who testify to him, so it is for every believer we may feel ashamed of Christ because there is suffering that comes with obedience to him. We even read of some of this in Second Peter, and the Psalms would be another example. Second Peter, where people are asking, so where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the Father's time, it's continued on in the world the same way. You shameful Christians, what you're relying on has no foundation. Don't be ashamed. Gospel proclamation is always going to run counter to our sinful culture and get us into trouble, not only with the culture, but with apparent religionists. We will always be tempted to embrace the shame that others would heap upon us. But Jesus says, Luke 9, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? Did you catch what he says? This is not just a statement about don't be ashamed or I'll be ashamed of you. He's saying he's really coming. There's no need to be ashamed. So don't be ashamed. And amazingly, the scriptures tell us God is not ashamed of us. Hebrews 11 tells us, verses 15 and 16, of those who did not receive the promises but believed the promises before the coming of Christ. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for you a city. God is not ashamed to be called your God. Indeed, Jesus has spoken of this way in Hebrews chapter 2, 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. God is not ashamed to call you his own family. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And you notice how Paul takes this up, even in the ways that he describes himself. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or me, his prisoner. And notice how he connects that. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Paul is not a prisoner of Rome, ultimately. Paul is a prisoner of the Lord. And he knows the power of what he has already told Timothy of in verse 7. And it's connected there in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And it's only if we live in the spirit of God who brings us into the power and love and self-control, our sound mind, the sanity of Jesus, that we will really be able to live without shame of Jesus and suffer and suffer for him. That's the point. Don't be ashamed. Enter into the sufferings of the Lord. Don't be ashamed, but share in suffering with me. I'd like you to notice two implications of this. First, that there is nothing in Christ or in any of those who suffer for him that is worthy of shame. 
There is nothing shameful in Jesus. And on the last day, there will only be glory and light and honor. A firm foundation. Hope forevermore because we have trust in Jesus. But I want you to notice further this. That not to share in the sufferings for the gospel is not to share in the power of God. Many people in the world would like God to exercise his power for them, but most of us don't really want him to exercise his power for us in suffering. But if you don't share in the sufferings of the gospel, you will not share in the power of the gospel. Not to share in Christ's sufferings is to be without the power of God in a unique way. To be a Christian, to believe the gospel, and to even suffer for it in a way that appears powerless to the world, even one that might put us into a prison cell, is true power. Now, I want to be careful here because we can quickly get ourselves into problems and suffer for our own sakes, as as Peter talks about. First Peter chapter 3. But, my dear friends, you can't help it. You live in a world that is at odds with the gospel and the God of the gospel. The people around you, their minds are darkened to the things of God. There is no spiritual life in them, and they are opposed to the light that exposes their sin. We are in a day. We are now in a day. And many of us feel utterly discombobulated by having gone through so many shifts so quickly. But we are living in a day when not to embrace the sexual perversions of the culture, you are the one that's going to be shamed. And Jesus says to you, don't be ashamed of my testimony. No, we don't need to rub in other people's face how shameful and disgusting they are. We are just as shameful in our sins. That is why we must not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. It isn't a testimony about how great we are, but how he saves wretched, needy, hopeless, filthy sinners like us. That's not something to be ashamed of. That's something to glory in. And perhaps you can remember in the history of the church, even in modern history, the many who have died. It's been said before that this past century, more believers have died for their faith than in all the previous centuries combined. Perhaps a couple of examples of that would be those vivid images of Christian martyrs on kneeling down on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea to be decapitated by ISIS. Do you remember this? They were not ashamed. Think of Rachel Scott, a victim at the Columbine shooting. First question, are you a Christian? And she died for her faith. Do not be ashamed, but suffer. It's okay to suffer. Your suffering for Christ never comes with shame. Now, quickly moving on, verses 9 through 11. Our salvation is through the gospel by the power of God. You notice how Paul goes on to fill this out. Suffer for the gospel by the power of God who saved us. And there's a deep and a really precious paradox here. We can suffer and yet be saved. Paul can say from prison, he saved us. That's really not what you expect to hear. You'd expect to hear, I got out of prison. Things are going great. He saved me. 
Well, we can say that then as well. But he has saved us from something much greater than the assaults and persecutions of the world. He has saved us from guilt and punishment, the power of our sin, fear, the fear of death in particular. He saved us from the corruption of sin and misery and depression over it. Yes, we still struggle with these things, but you are at liberty. You, dear believer, are saved. And the shame that the world attempts to impose upon you could never amount to the shame that you rightly would have before God himself and his holiness. And all of that has been taken away. He saved us and called us. In other words, he saved us and brought us into a holy calling. What we were before Christ came into our life was not pleasing to God. Now we are. Now we are enabled by the Spirit of God to walk in the ways of Christ, to live in a manner that is pleasing to God, not ashamed of the gospel, but even, and you notice the connection here, Paul is not just saying that we're called to live in obedience to God, we are also called to a holy calling of suffering for Christ. Now, is this some sort of a doomsday prophecy at this point? Maybe you're wondering, is this all about the gloom of coming days? No, dear friends, this is the normal Christian life. And it has been and remains to be so for most Christians in the world. And if you haven't tasted it and recognized it yet, you will. It's God's purpose that you would be confronted with the gospel in such a way that you are brought into the fellowship of Jesus' own sufferings. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. That's a gift. What a blessing, Paul is saying. This is why the disciples being persecuted, can leave rejoicing that they suffered for the sake of Jesus. And we are because we have been saved from what is so much worse than suffering, our own impurity, the distance that we have by nature from God because of sin, and we are saved to an effectual call, a powerful call, so that we certainly shall do and shall come and shall live according to God's grace in Christ. And you notice how he says this. He has saved us to a holy calling, But then observe what he says, not because of our works, or dare I say, he has saved us from our works. Paul is so enamored with the gospel that he wants us to hear it again and again and again. It's not works that we've done that have brought us near to God, but his purpose in Christ and his grace. Think of how he says this. Ephesians 2, you know these verses, I trust. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. If we have our works to consider, if they must mount up to heaven and reach the place where everything balances out and karma is maintained, then even the best that we could ever offer to God is utterly inadequate to cover not only the sins of the past, but a corrupt nature and a heart that desperately needs to be rescued. Jesus has saved us. He calls you into this holy walk with him. He brings you into his sufferings for fellowship, and he even brings you into those works that please him. Please him because you don't trust in them but you trust in Christ 
who has worked on your behalf. Your salvation, dear believer, is quite apart from anything that you have ever done. If we try to measure up, then we never shall. As one hymn puts it, if we wait until we're better, we will never come to Christ and have what is in him. Our salvation from first to last is God's sovereign working by the power of his spirit. He acts to rescue us. Now, if God has so acted to rescue you and to give you a peaceful conscience and the joy of the Holy Spirit and to begin to taste the powers of the age to come and to rejoice in Christ, then won't he enable you also to endure suffering and not be ashamed? All of this is because of God's eternal purpose, Paul says, and his grace given to us before the world began. God's, we might say, his decree of predestination before the world was ever made. Think of this. God determined to give you his grace and his son. And as Spurgeon notes that the Greek here is in the perfect tense, so it's an action that's completed, but the results are still with us. What a comfort. Think about that. Before you had ever done a single thing, God determined freely to give you grace. And if God, before the world was made, before anything in this life ever began, gave you his grace, then it could never be dependent on what you do, how tomorrow's going to turn out, or what you think about yourself. God's grace is dependent on himself. And it was his purpose to give you himself even before he made you. There's never been a moment when the salvation of a believer has been in question. Never a single moment. However, we struggle with believing, wrestle with assurance. There has never been a moment when all was not completely settled from eternity in God himself. God has settled his affections upon you before light ever entered the world. And you can be sure he's not forgotten the purpose that he determined. You have a durable grace in Jesus. A present power. Paul speaks of Christ as a great conqueror. The Caesars would like to term themselves in his day the saviors of their people. They came in and conquered and rescued their people. Well, Jesus is our savior, he says. He is the one who has appeared to save us, a great conqueror, a great ruler, and what he has done for us, again, legal terms, uh, kind of a description of a great ruler, he has abolished death as if it were a law that it is now nullified and taken out of the way by his death. He has ended death and brought life and immortality into light. He's introduced us to the new rule of his grace, brought an end to death, so that death can never separate us from Christ, even the worst of suffering. We have in the gospel light and life and immortality. What shame is there in that? What shame is there in a gospel that is so secured that from creation it is already certain for you? Christ manifested, secures it for you. And Christ coming at the end fully delivers it for you. There is nothing in this gospel, in this salvation, to be ashamed of. 
Now let's move on to a third point, verse 12. A wonderful verse that many of us have taken to heart, for which, Paul writes, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer, verse 12, as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. We have security in the gospel by the power of God. Christ is the one who's appointed him to this. Christ is the one who appointed him to be an apostle to us Gentiles, that we would have the word of God written down for us, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher called to suffer for the sake of Christ, willingly suffering that we might enjoy the fruit of the gospel and that he would win Christ. And so Paul says, I am not ashamed to suffer. Think of all the voices against Paul. He has been hounded by the Jews for years that his gospel is the wrong one. There are false teachers that have entered into the church to try to usurp the authority that God has given to him and to lay claim to the affections of whole churches like Corinth. There are people who in his day, in Second Timothy writing here, who have turned away from him. And yet he can say, I am not ashamed. His conscience, verse 3, is clear. Again, verse 3, he has served the God of his forefathers. And he, he loves to repeat this in his ministry. He is not ashamed because he knows he has spoken rightly and he has done what is right. But really, this is an understatement. He is not ashamed because the converse is true. He knows the one he has believed. And rejoices in the security that that brings. He knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is a wicked thing, and it does happen in our culture, to not be ashamed when we have done something that's shameful. And yet our culture does resonate with shame. It seems to be the big entertainment that takes place on the Internet, shaming other people and maybe even getting them out of their jobs because of something they've said or done at one time or another. Whatever closets you've got in your life, there is plenty of shame to go around. But there is no need for shame for the one who with Paul knows and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen again to what he says. I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And then he goes on to say, I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And the word there could be simply a deposit, what has been deposited. He knows the one who has given him, quote, unquote, the deposit. And it's an interesting translation question. Is it what has been entrusted to Paul to give to the church, the gospel? Is it what Paul has entrusted to God himself? I think the the answer is yes, really. It's all of those things that are precious. The gospel, his life, his faith, himself, his future, his suffering, his relationships, his honor, his confidence, all that is mine, he says, I trust Jesus to keep it. 
and to guard it. There is no need for shame in this because I know Christ. I know the one I believe. I know, in other words, not just his claims, but by experience, I know him. And Paul does know him, having met him on the road to Damascus. He knows him through constant struggles and sorrows, through his consistent preaching. Listen to what he's saying. Here he is alone in a prison cell. Everybody's abandoned him. He is suffering with cold, probably disease, almost certainly hunger, doesn't have his library, has hostile people around him. Put yourself into that for a second. And this is not the writing of a weakened, depressed old man. This is a man like Caleb who says, I have the gospel. I'm not ashamed. I, on the other hand, am honored to set it forth, to pursue it, and to declare Christ to be my protection and safekeeping. We deposit things with the bank, your safe deposit box. Maybe you have a safe at home to keep it safe. Paul has done this with Christ. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but I've occasionally gotten a fraud alert from my bank or my credit card. What do you do when that happens? Well, you run and check your balance, right? Is it all there? Is, it really, is everything okay? And Paul says, I don't need to check my balance. I know with certainty beyond all capability of men, their time, their resources, their creativity to get at what is most precious to me. It is utterly secure and I know it. Not an intellectual knowledge purely, but I know the one who secures it. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep it till the day when he comes again. This is a call. Yes, don't be ashamed. How can you not be ashamed of Jesus? Know him. Know him truly, really deeply. Know his power. The power that saves us from our bad and our good works. The power that delivers us into eternal life. The power that delivers us from the imposed shame of other people and the shame that we rightfully have of our own false actions. The power that will safely bring us through the hardship of death into unending joy. You must know him, not just doctrine about him, but lean upon him. Paul says, I have leaned my whole soul upon Jesus. He is secure. I am secure. I know without Any doubt, with a full persuasion and a firm conviction, Jesus will keep what he's given to me and what I have given to him, and so he can never be ashamed. Dear friend, what have you given to Jesus? What have you entrusted to him? What are the things that you say, that's precious, and I realize I'm actually not capable of guarding it? You could never be ashamed. The world can never come back and say, see, your confidence in Jesus was false if your trust is really and truly in him. We have this confidence. We read in John 10, verse 28, Jesus says, I give, speaking of his people, them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
the strong hand of Almighty God secures you to the day of judgment. So you can go on and live for Jesus and speak of Jesus, even if it means suffering, and not be ashamed. Indeed, the Psalms tell us, the whole of the Bible tells us that what now appears to be shame for believers will on the last day be reversed. And so this is, I'll end with this warning to those who have not put their trust into Christ. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Psalm 40, verse 14. Jeremiah seventeen eighteen. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. This is the expectation of the Christian. You will not be ashamed. Not for any moment of your trust in Christ will you ever be ashamed. Because as it says, again in the psalm, Psalm 34, 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. We wait for that day of full radiance, but even now, dear believer, do not be ashamed. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we praise you that we have such a gospel, secure, a salvation never to be taken away. We have the very power of God to sustain us, even in suffering and standing under the grace of Christ. Not our works, not what we've decided beforehand, but what you have done, what you have given us and given to us in Jesus. And so we pray that we might know the one who secures us with such confidence and conviction. Know that Christ's hand is so upon us that we can never be lost. And the things that we give to you can never be lost. Assure and strengthen us in this conviction, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.